0: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. i got Mr Lock with me today. Hello, Lockie. Hi,
2: how you doing?
0: People should know by now, right? When they hear that you're here with me, what's coming at them?
2: You got to you got to know that the First World War or some element of it is not too far away, haven't yeah. you? Um, no different this time. Um, we've got a, some scheming and intriguing to uh, to talk about, hopefully, because uh, Ronan McGreevy uh, is with us, and he's a man who's written pol- prolifically on Ireland in the First World War, uh, including the Easter Rising. Uh, he's on the staff at the Irish Times, and he's with us to talk about his latest book, The Great Hatred which examines the assassination of your friend and mine, Field Marshal
3: Sir Henry Wilson. Ronan, how are you? Great. Zach. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: Brilliant. Uh, there was an element of sarcasm there about Henry <laughs> Wilson being our friend. Uh, we're, we like Hague. uh, We yes. like uh, I love Kitchener. So I, I have my issues with Mr Wilson or Sir Wilson, uh but we're here today because you can't ignore him. Even if you don't like him very much, you can't ignore him, can you, Lockie?
2: No, not really. Uh he <laughs> writes from 1914 to 1918. He's part of the story, and even before the Great War gets going. So I'm I've been looking forward to this for a little while, yep, actually. Definitely. Um okay, Ronan, let's let's get going then. Um sure. for those who don't know, for the uninitiated on this man, Wilson. Uh, anglo-irish british army officer ulsterman wasn't he i mean can you tell us a bit about him
3: well he was um he was certainly anglo-irish uh, uh alex he was from uh, Banlalee county longford which is ironically enough uh, one of the heartlands of irish nationalism uh, it's in the south which is interesting um he identified as an ulster man uh, because his family had been in Ulster since the Williamite Wars of the 1690. But um, actually, he wasn't actually temporarily from Ulster. He was from the South, which I think explains his reaction to the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Uh, he felt that Southern Unionists were being, like himself, were being abandoned. Um, he had a very, uh, he had a very typically Anglo-Irish uh, background. He went to uh, um, Mar- Marlborough College and, uh, uh, he then uh, failed every exam he went to several times for the army, uh, got in the back door through the militias and uh, and to the Royal Irish Regiment and rose up by uh, dint of both uh, ability and uh, by intrigue and by um, his ability to uh, garner good friendships to become the Chief of the Imperial General Staff in February 1918, which was the professional head of the British Army.
0: He... Um- Oh, he's a bit of a marmite character, isn't he? Um, you mentioned intrigue. He he is the best bitch in the British Army for me in the higher ranks. Um, in terms of the intrigue and the bitch, you know, some of his quips are hilarious. Um, but he's prolific. I think it's important to say more as an army administrator than as a fighting general, isn't he? Um, yes. I love Marmite. I don't love Wilson. Uh, So tell us, because I am completely coloured by this, tell us what we can credit him with up to the end of the First World War.
3: Well, we can credit him with uh, the preparations that the British Expeditionary Force had for the First World War Um, when he was director of military operations. uh, He... um, It was he who uh, um, drew up, it's probably his greatest single achievement. He was he who drew up the sort of logistical plans for uh, six divisions of the British Army, which was a small force at the time in comparison with the French and German armies. But still, it had a a, a very uh, good effect on the morale of the French nation to deploy on the left. Of the uh, French uh, uh, army in, in in the coming conflict against uh, Germany, um, the uh, British Expeditionary Force was able to deploy uh, within. Three weeks of, of, of war being declared, it all went really really smoothly. Um, he had mapped out a plan for the, the Royal Navy and the French French um, railway service to take to take um, to take the, the the British expeditionary force to be deployed on the the, the left flank of the French um, army. He had spent many many years um, warning about the threat that that Germany posed, and he was of course. Um, Somebody who believed in um, uh, conscription long before it was popular or, or implemented in the UK. So I think uh, I, I think even his uh, most uh, ardent detractors would give him credit for his far-sightedness uh, when he came to um, you know showing how the British Army would be deployed once a, a European war broke out.
0: Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that, wouldn't you, Lockie? And I think it's important to say as well, as far as relations with the French go, he is the ultimate francophile, isn't he?
3: Yes, he was the ultimate Francophile. He was um he was brought up uh, he was educated at home in in county Longford by uh, french governesses who um, uh, and he became a lifelong francophile in a, in a very monoglot uh, uh, british army it's fair to say he he um, he had a friendship uh, that extended before the war with ferdinand foch who would go on to become the allied supreme commander in uh, 1918 and the, the pair worked very well together so chiefly uh, wilson's role during the war was as a liaison between the French and British uh, forces and as we know um, that was kind of haphazard and ad hoc and all the rest of that until um, until I think the, the, the German Spring Offensive of 1918 concentrated the minds of the Allies as to how close they came to defeat. So after that, obviously, you have the Joint Allied Command, and uh, you have uh, the war won essentially in 1918 uh, at a time when you no know, most most uh, most uh, commentators uh, believe that it would take um, take until 1919 for the the weight of American forces to to, to bear on the German German positions.
2: So, I mean, the, the kind of the coalition element then is clearly a strength of his. Um, and I guess you could say it's a, it's a sharp appointment then in 1918, having him um, working with Foch, uh, Supreme Commander. When we get to the end of the war, where does he go next? You know, we, got, we have the victorious allies. Um, there's the, the, the coalition doesn't need to be held together anymore. So what's next for Wilson after that?
3: Well, um, you know, he's still the, uh, you know, his problems don't end on Armistice Day. I mean, Armistice creates a new set of problems for him. You have the largest army that Britain has ever assembled in any field, as 7 million men have to be demobbed. And then you have all the problems, the post-war problems. Uh, you know, we were inclined to think of the, the, the sort of height of the British Empire being the 19th century. But actually, the British Empire was never as big as it was after the First World War, because you also had mandates uh, in, in, in the Middle East and you had uh, huge problems in Egypt and uh Iraq or Mes- Mesopotamia, as it was then um I mean you know you talk about Ireland at that stage uh being a problem as well, but like there was problems across the empire, and there was also problems in India as well, there was a separatist uh uh, separatism was growing there, especially after, after the Amritsar Massacre. So you had all that, then you had the deployment of British troops in in in, in Russia uh, uh, as part of the uh, White Army to 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 face off against the Bolsheviks, which which um, uh, Wilson bitterly opposed. Uh, Wilson said that you know we sh- that Britain should stick to the countries that it owns. Uh, in commas, inverted commas, and and stay out of the the business of other countries. So I mean, it was far from it was far from easy sailing after nineteen eighteen. Um, you know, you had uh, the the you had extra responsibilities for the British Empire, and you also at the same time had the demobbing of men who expected a lot better from their lives, having sacrificed so much uh, in, in the First World War.
2: I think it's a real kind of serious business that people misunderstand don't they we hit the armistice and everyone thinks that the guns fall silent and it speeds across europe and it really really is not the fighting comes home in a lot of countries you mentioned russia but there's revolution in germany and um and of course fighting in ireland uh, as well um yeah I you mean, you got lots of uh, men with a, a strong desensitisation to violence and um, and a healthy dose of P- PTSD come home, don't they?
3: Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, the 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 um, the, the First World War really was the uh, it was the end of the First World War, and it should be should be uh, I think noted that, um, you know, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom during the First World War. My last book was, uh, wherever the firing line extends, was about the Irish experience in the Great War, which has really only now been properly uh, excavated, so to speak. So, I mean, there was... Forty thousand men from the island of Ireland killed in the First World War. Thirty thousand actually from what is now the twenty-six counties of the Republic of Ireland. So, like, I mean, the, the Irish have played a full part in the First World War for for good or ill. But but that's not the end of it. I mean, as soon as the war is over, within a month, um, uh, there's a declaration of independence by the Irish Parliament. Have, uh, all those who have won seats in the Westminster Parliament election of December nineteen eighteen, they declare. Uh, An independent Irish state uh, set up an independent Irish parliament on the same day, which is the 21st of January 1919. The Irish War of Independence begins. So you have uh, for the next two and a half years, uh, you have a conflict between Britain and Ireland, between the IRA on the one hand and British Crown forces on the other. And of course, uh, Wilson will have a, a a great personal interest in in this conflict, um, given that he's Irish himself. Uh, but he's of the Unionist tradition, and I think he brings a particular Irish animus uh, to 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 the whole conflict. He he he's so emotionally connected. To 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 the fight against the IRA that he can't really see beyond that he can't see that this isn't some kind of a, a rogue um, offensive by a few uh, um, uh, misguided separatists so this is this is this is a, 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 a popular rebellion against British rule in Ireland uh, and Wilson is uh, inveigled in this and. He becomes a field marshal in June 1919. It's an honorary title, really, because he, as we have spoken about before, he didn't really spend a huge amount of time in the field during the First World War. But it's given to him for his um, for his role as, as 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 you know the for 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 all his his service to Britain in the First World War. But uh, is at that stage that he starts to fall out with the British government over Ireland. Um, he feels that uh, the Irish situation is a security situation that the British should uh, send in 40,000 men and crush the um, IRA. The British government is constrained by the fact that um, there's widespread international sympathy for Ireland, especially in the United States. And a lot of sort of liberal Britain is uh, horrified by the excesses of the Crown forces that are sent to Ireland, the black and tans and the auxiliaries, which are, as you say, a former British uh, servicemen who are sent to Ireland to to keep the peace, but actually end up um, uh, alienating the entire population. So there is a a huge standoff between Wilson and the British government in in this time period.
0: I think um, what you're describing, I'm guessing, is what's referred to as the Orange Terror, um, which is... So the Orange side is is the Unionist unionist side, isn't it? So what is the Orange Terror uh, specifically? and, And does Wilson play a role in it?
3: Well, um, this is where it gets kind of complicated because while, while the War of Independence is going on in the south of Ireland in what's now known as the 26 counties, now it is in 32 counties as well, but not to the same extent, there's effectively a civil war going on in the north as well. And it's, um, it's an embryonic troubles which has been largely forgotten about. It lasted from July 1920 to June uh, July uh, 2022, where you have um, a, a unionist backlash against nas- Irish nationalism. Um, it begins with the expulsions from the shipyards of Catholic workers and what's known as rotten prods, uh, left wing Protestants. And uh, that starts uh, two years of blood- bloodshed, which leads to the deaths of over 500 people. It's, it's a sectarian conflict but the people who suffer most in it are the national stroke catholic population of of the north um they are uh, they account for twice as many um uh, fatalities as 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 protestants uh, even though their their the, the population is reversed they're only a third of the population and um there is obviously a backlash. The Northern Ireland state is created in June 1921. Um, there's a backlash uh, by Irish nationalists against that. Um, there are a couple of um, state uh, forces that are founded at this time. The Ulster Special Constabulary in particular which is known, better known as the B Specials. And they are in, meant to be the state forces to keep the peace. But actually, as far as most nationalists in the North are concerned, um, they are a force that are Directly um, is directly uh, uh, opposed to them, so you have a problem in the north with with um, with, with sectarian violence as well. And into this steps uh, uh, Wilson in March 1920. Now, just to fill you into the picture, he his four year terms as the chief of the Imperial General Staff, six SIGS as is known, ends in February 1922. Within three or four days, he's elected as unopposed as a Yolster Unionist MP. For uh, North Down, Uh, he sits on the Conservative benches at that stage. Many of the Conservatives are anti the uh, Anglo-Irish Treaty, which had been signed in December uh, the previous year, setting up the Irish Free State. So... Straight away, um, uh, Wilson is is made the Chief Military Advisor to the Northern Government of uh, Sir James Craig, the Northern Ireland Prime Minister. And he becomes associated in the minds, uh, Wilson becomes associated in the minds of Irish nationalists with the excesses of state forces in the north, the B-specials, the RUC and the British Army. And so... Um, uh the principal reason why he was shot, and we're going to come on to his assassination, presumably in a few minutes, is because he's associated with the northern pogroms. He's associated with the pogroms against the uh, uh, nationalist Catholic pop- pop- population in the north. And uh, this is the principal reason why he's assassinated in June 1922.
2: The, yeah, I mean, I'm now th- sort of thinking back into 1914 and and Curra uh, a little bit, and actually his uh, his, his role in in stopping um, the British Army piling in uh, there. Obviously, that would have been against your Unionists there too. So I guess he's not opposed to force in, in some sort of sense, and he clearly
3: picks his side, doesn't he? Well, um, yes. On that subject, I mean, he was. Uh, he was deeply involved in the Curra mutiny. This was well; it wasn't a mutiny as such because there was no, um, there was no order. But it was. It's known as the Curra incident, uh, whereby um, uh, the British government uh, has made contingency plans for, uh, in the event of home rule being implemented, that the British Army would would was, would, would keep order in the north. Um, there's uh, quite a few Anglo-Irish uh, uh, officers who are based in the Kara say they're not going to obey British army orders. Wilson, who is director of military operations at this side, and then therefore, um, you know, one of the chief senior forces in the army uh, is intriguing on the side of the of those who won't, uh, who won't um, uh, march against, who won't obey a British government order if it came to it. And to be honest, uh, uh, it made it made Wilson uh, a huge enemies in the British establishment, particularly among Herbert Asquith, the British Prime Minister, who regarded him as an intriguer and uh, a poisonous ruffin, as he called him. And uh, it's it's not it's it's not uh, coincidental that that uh, Wilson didn't become Sigs until uh, Herbert Asquith had left office in, in December nineteen sixteen.
0: Yeah, because Asquith was nearly ruined in fourteen. The First World War basically saved his premiership, didn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. He has gone, I think. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the
4: professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
3: Yeah, and, and Asquith, um, Asquith was the first person to pay a tribute to, to Wilson after he died. But Asquith had no time for Wilson. Um, he he regarded him as a gossiper, an intriguer, somebody who was trying to undermine the government. Uh, he wasn't far around there. Uh, but um, I think that uh, Lloyd George saw in Wilson a sort of uh, a, a kind of a, a, a maverick spirit like he had. He, he regarded Wilson as very much self-made. Um, very mercurial, like like, like Lloyd George. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he really, uh, Lloyd George put a huge amount of trust in Wilson. Uh, obviously, you know, as well as I do, how much Lloyd George despised most of the British generals, particularly Douglas Haig. But he seems to have had a soft spot uh, for um, Wilson. And, and that's why he made Wilson sigs in, in February 1918 kindred spirit i suppose um let's
2: let's introduce a couple more characters uh then shall we um Reginald Dunn
3: who is this Reginald Dunn is the son of a british army bandmaster um and uh he is uh uh london born he's born in woolwich barracks in 19 is in 18 uh 98 um he is uh, Jesuit-educated, Catholic boy, deeply devout, um, who joins the British Army eh, on his 18th birthday in 1916. He joins the Irish Guards, so obviously he's got an Irish background. His mother's family is, is from County Monaghan. And um, he is uh, wounded uh, during the German sp- uh, Spring Offensive of 1918 and invalided out of the army. And then in 1919, he is... Um, He's a musician, as I said. His, fa- his father was a bandmaster in the British Army. Um, he is a cultural, he becomes uh, interested in the Irish question, as they call it at the time, to his involvement with an organization called uh, uh, Con- Conrad Gilga, which is um, an Irish language and, and music um, uh, organization, which had a lot of branches in London. Um, he's completely radicalized. He joins the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. And, and also the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which is a secret organisation. He becomes, say, with the zeal of the convert, he becomes... Um uh, a completely messianic uh, supporter of Irish independence. He becomes the officer commanding the London IRA. And we now know, uh, thanks to files that have only been released in recent years, just how how important the London IRA was in terms of the um, uh, 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 supplying guns to the IRA in Ireland and also in, in, in involving themselves in sort of a guerrilla campaign of, of burnings and arson attacks that really unsettled the population. In, in london and uh, he was also involved i think it's important to state in plans to assassinate the british cabinet which uh which were first activated in 1918 but only acted upon when they shot wilson in 1922 so he's a very intriguing character he's um he's an intellectual he's a catholic he's a devout catholic he's uh he, he he he's um he's a deep thinker he uh he, he wins prizes for poetry in school and he becomes a trainee teacher uh, after after the war. He also is in receipt of an invalid pension from the British government. And uh, so, um, you know, he's not he's not really anybody's idea of what, who you would think would be a, a radical Irish
0: nationalist. We also have as well, don't we? Joseph O'Sullivan.
3: Joe Sullivan's from a more conventional Irish background, uh, whereas Reggie Dunn was an only child. Um, uh, uh, Joe O'Sullivan was from a more stereotypical large Irish Catholic family. There was 11 uh, surviving children. His father was from Bantry County, West Cork, which is uh, sort of the heartland of Irish, uh, uh, the Irish Fenian movement. Um, uh, but Joe O'Sullivan, uh, he has seven brothers, six of them served in the First World War. Joe O'Sullivan uh, joins the London Regiment in 1915. It's interesting that he joins voluntarily as well. He's not. He's not. Uh, he's not conscripted, and um, he loses his uh, leg at Passchendaele in in August 1917. Uh, he is um, invalided out. Obviously, he gets a job as a messenger in the Department of uh, the Ministry of Labour after the war. Um, uh, and he's he's familiar with wha- uh, what uh, Henry Wilson looks like, because Henry Wilson is dropping into the Ministry of Labour to on business related to the demobbing of, 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 of former soldiers. Uh, so uh, Joe Sullivan, too, joins the IRA in 1919, as does his brother, Pat O'Sullivan, who's left a very um very long and interesting testimony about uh the family's involvement in the uh, uh the IRA. Um he was from uh a, 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 a family of master tailors. Um Pato Sullivan writes about uh in his in his in his in his um a letter for an Irish pension, how he had used his uh, tailor shop in Chancery Lane as a place to store guns for the IRA. He also uh, himself and Joe O'Sullivan and uh, uh, Reggie Dunn used their wound badges that they receive as First World War veterans to walk into uh, British Army barracks and steal rifles uh, and ammunition for the IRA. So they're two very intriguing characters. Again, very well educated by the standards of the time. They're both actually public schoolboy, so to speak. Um, uh, uh, Reggie Dunn goes to St. A. In Ignatius College in, in London, and he is, believe it or not, a contemporary of Alfred Hitchcock, uh, whereas Joe Sullivan goes to St. Edmunds Ware's College, which I think is in Hartford which is the oldest uh, continuous Catholic school in Britain.
2: Interesting. The, the point you make about know, knowing what Wilson looks like, I, I think uh, he had a fairly distinctive ex- uh, appearance, didn't he? And He, he had a, a face that even a mother would struggle to love. Um,
3: yes, yes I, 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 I struggled with that myself, but um, I think we have got to, to look back to the time before um, TV, before the internet, before uh, um, radio. I mean, just... Knowing what people looked like is not that that easy. I mean, Michael Michael Collins managed to avoid British um, uh, British uh, uh, intelligence for a long time because they had no photograph of him. So you might think, well, we know what Wilson looks like now, but it wasn't that easy back then. To um, there was a lot of mustachioed sort of uh, ex uh, British generals uh, walking around the streets of London. And also, another important thing was that they also knew his address, which is number thirty six Eaton Place. And I think that's really really important.
0: It is bonkers, um, isn't it, when you think about it like that? It's just like, how do you even know that you've got the right guy as well? Because even like, yeah, you might have seen a portrait in a newspaper, yeah. but those portraits often don't actually look. I mean, they're supposed to give the best side. They don't. They're not like candid selfies, are they, Lockie?
2: No, I think yeah. Some of those portraits even make Wilson look, you know,
3: really, really. And some. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they
0: yeah. managed to find some side of him that isn't quite as bad. Yeah
3: yeah i mean they they had to there's a very there 's an interesting story in my book about this guy called kaha brewer Who uh, who only is the centenary? He was one of the first. He was the first significant fatality of the Irish Civil War. But he was going around. um, They 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 had uh, built up a list of targets uh, that they were going to attack, including all the members of the British Cabinet and people like Lord Rothermere, who was the uh, proprietor of the Daily Mail, etc. And he had them like football cards. I mean, he was looking. This is what these guys look like. And you think, well. Actually, you know, how would you know what these people look like unless you had photographs of them? And how do you go? about? Well, you can't just buy a newspaper and hope they'll be there. You know, you have to you have to cut out the photographs, etc. So it wasn't as easy as people think to uh, to 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 target these people in those days.
2: OK, I mean, well, he, they've got his address then they've, they've got reason. You know, having looked at the kind of politics behind it, we, we've uh, we've got a bit of context here. Uh, is there any more to the assassination to, to bear in mind?
3: Well, the thing about it is is that, um, obviously, when you want to assassinate somebody, you have to have a motive and you have to have an opportunity, right? So the motive that I explained to you before was um, uh, Wilson's perceived role in the Orange Terror, as I described it, but what about the opportunity? So there's a meeting of the IRA. Uh, they are divided over the treaty, whether to support the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which sets up the Irish Free State. The meeting's held in June the 21st, nineteen twenty. June the 21st uh, the evening of June the 21st in Mooney's Pope in in Holborn which i believe is still there and in walks a guy one of the one of the the officers with a photograph with the uh, with a copy of the evening news and there in buried probably be on page seven is a single paragraph a, a news and brief as we call it in journalism stating that uh, uh Henry Wilson is going to uh unveil a memorial at Liverpool Street Station the following day uh and suddenly here we have we know where Wilson is going to be and so Reggie Dunn and Joe Sullivan, they look at this and they're, they're, they're thunderstruck, right? And they decide to repair to Liverpool Street Station to check, to, to check out the joint. They realise that they're not going to be able to kill this guy um, uh, at, at Liverpool Street. They're not going to be able to get away. So they wait for Wilson to unveil the memorial and they walk to his house. So he unveils the memorial about a quarter to one. Wilson has a, a meeting in the House of Commons at around uh, uh, three thirty, so he's got to go home and change back into civilian clothes. And they're waiting for him on the doorstep of his home at twelve thirty-six Eaton Place, and they shoot him six times and they kill him. So, um, and then you might ask the question: Why on earth would you have a one-legged man um, uh, as one of the assassins? Well, as I said to you, the opportunity—you had to take the opportunity when it came. And this was the only opportunity they have you know you in those days you ju- you didn't know where uh, a politician was going to be from one day to the next so uh Joe Sullivan was available and he was willing to do it so um they shot him but uh you know they he uh, um Reggie Dont is also a wounded veteran. They try to get away. They shoot two policemen uh, as they 're trying to flee the mob that 's chasing after them but of course eventually they run out of ammunition and run out of puff so they're they are um, uh, caught at Ebury street which is about six or seven hundred meters away they're attacked by a mob they're saved by the police but the police take them to Jarrett street police station and beat the hell out of them and then they they're 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 um they, they appear in court that evening and of course like it's a it's a slam dunk really i mean you know there's no way they're going to get away with this so they're sentenced to uh to be executed um
0: Let's leave them because I'm conscious of I want people to go and buy the book. So if you want to find out the full story of what happened to Don and O'Sullivan, go buy the book. But I do want to talk about um, the knock on effect of Wilson's murder. So first of all, how does the world react?
3: Absolute shock and consternation. Um, you know, uh, we've had on for I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to you today as the uh, as we talk about the um, former japanese prime minister has just been assassinated and you can imagine that the 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 world reaction to that and this is a huge shock in the uk i mean we're not talking about um a backbench mp Uh, We're talking about the former head of the British Army. We're talking about somebody who is one of the men who wins the war, as far as many of his contemporaries are concerned. We're talking about somebody who was part of the delegation that uh, 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 negotiated the Treaty of Versailles. And we're talking about the first assassination on British soil since 1812, since the Prime Minister in 1812. And I go into this in detail in the book, how, you know, lots of countries in Europe, and of course the United States loses three presidents to assassination in the 19th and early 20th century. It's just not the British way of doing things. A Political assassination is not the British way. And so there's massive shock and consternation in Britain. Also, there's a belief that here we are, you know, I thought we had solved the British, the Irish question, you know, by setting up the Free State. There was supposed to be peace between Britain and Ireland, and here, you know, the head of the British Army, the former head of the British Army has been assassinated on the streets. Uh, it makes worldwide headlines. It's, so it's the front page in practically every American newspaper the following day. Um, there's consternation in France as well. I mean the, the, the British Army is known in France as L'Arme de Wilson, the uh, Wilson Army and so on. And so all the Allies are are really, really shocked by this. And it should be noted as well that two days after Wilson was assassinated... Um, the uh, the German uh, uh, foreign minister, Walter Rathenau, was also assassinated. So the world is really reeling from the shock of all of this. And if you look at the uh, video footage, and it's you can Google it, or you can go to YouTube and see it, of Wilson's uh, funeral. I mean, it's one of the biggest funerals that London has ever had outside a member of the British royal family.
2: What about in Ireland? I mean, if, if there's consternation in the UK, is, is is the reaction similar in Ireland? Is there a sense of, oh, God, what's what's happened now? What's,
3: what's- Yeah, there is, really. I mean, there's a shock in Ireland about it, too. Um, Arthur Griffith, who's the president of dal Air and effectively the leader of the state, says this isn't the way we do business. We, I mean, you know, I don't think you. I'd be letting you into any secret to say that the uh, vast majority of uh, people in nationalist Ireland, at least, um had no time for Wilson and his views, but you know that, that's one aspect of it. But to be assassinated the way he was on the streets of, of of London was a shock for the Irish government. Of course, it created a huge problem, which for the Irish government as well, because uh, the uh, and, and precipitated the civil war in the north. He's regarded as the first martyr of the Northern State. Uh, by James Craig, the British, the Prime Minister. And it is interesting, actually, bringing it up to the present day, that on the centenary of his um, uh, assassination, there was a a, a plaque unveiled in the House of Commons Chamber. I happened to be there at the time by the Speaker, uh, Lindsay Hoyle, and done by uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. And the principal people behind that plaque were, were the Ulster Unionist MPs, including uh, most particularly Ian Paisley. So he's still regarded in some ways as a martyr of the, uh, for Northern Ireland, whereas in the South, he's regarded as, he was regarded as basically what he was, an enemy of Irish nationalism.
0: I think as well, you, you use a particular phrase. Um, why do you refer to his assassination as Ireland Sarajevo?
3: Well, I think this is a very. This is why this 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 uh, assassination is so such a significant event in Irish history. So, going back to um, going back to the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in December 1921, which sets up the Irish Free State, um, there's. Uh, the The Irish nationalist movement, the Sinn Féin uh, uh, and the IRA at the time split over this. There are those who are willing to accept the treaty as a stepping stone for freedom, as Michael Collins uh, says, and there's those like uh, Éamon Dembler who are opposed to it. They say that they want an Irish, 32-county Irish republic rather than dominion status that still has the king uh, as the head of state. And this is a very, very serious impasse. And in uh, the, I, the IRA, which had uh, been the uh, which had fought the British to a standstill in November nineteen twenty or in July nineteen twenty one, a split over this substantial portion of the uh, senior commanders in the IRA refused to accept the new Irish government, refused to accept the treaty. They occupied the Four Courts, which is like the old Bailey of Ireland in of April in nineteen twenty two, and they're still in situ. In June nineteen, uh, by the time Wilson is assassinated in June nineteen twenty two, to cut a long story short, the British government, whether um, uh, conveniently or not, blame the anti treaty side uh, for the shooting of Wilson. They tell the Provisional Irish Government at that stage, headed by Michael Collins, that if, if the um, If the provisional government doesn't deal with the anti treaty rebels and get them out of the four courts, that the British government will come back into Ireland and do it for them. Uh, Bear in mind that there's still a British garrison in Ireland uh, of about 7,000 soldiers. And um, the British cabinet is spoiling for a fight following the assassination of Wilson. Winston Churchill, who's the Secretary of State for the Colonies, wants to send in the Royal Navy and the the RAF. So there's a there's there's a danger here that we're going to reignite the war between Britain and Ireland. So the so the Irish government is left in a difficult situation. Either it deals with the Four Court Rebels and risks the possibility of a civil war, or it uh, or it doesn't deal with them and risks uh, um, a starting a war with Britain, which you can't really win um, because you just don't have the the IRA has been degraded since the uh, since the since the so War of Independence ended. So it's a terrible dilemma for the Irish government and uh, they, they take the path of least, least resistance and decide to deal with the four court rebels. And this, the, the shelling of the four courts on June the 28th 1922, is the event that starts the civil war. So, getting back to the question about Ireland, Sarajevo, we know that uh, we know that the First World War begins with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in June 1914. This precipitates a, 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 an ultimatum from the Serbian go- from the Austrian government to Serbia. So, if you substitute the British ultimatum to the Irish government, uh, you know Serbia doesn't can't um, can't agree with this uh, uh, ultimatum. So, basically, what, what I what I suggest in my book is that without the Wilson. Shooting, there would have been no Irish Civil War, and the history of Ireland would have been different.
2: This whole period is absolutely fascinating, and I love the historical parallels. I mean, this this one with Sarajevo is, is something. I think I think the violence reaching the streets in uh, in, in Ireland is comparable with German Revolution uh, as well. Um, the use of political murder as a tool is just yeah. You know, it, it's it's something that we. Yeah, as you say, it's kind of we should come back to us today with the with the Japanese former prime minister uh, as well. Absolutely.
3: And, and, and the, I don't know if you've ever spoken to him, but there's a book by a, a German historian who's based here in Dublin by Robert Gerwarth called Why the First World War Failed to End. And it's a brilliant book. Uh, Resume of of all the um, uh, civil wars uh, that that occurred after after the First World War. He re- he estimates that in the four years after the First World War, four million uh, people died in Europe uh, from various different civil wars and conflicts, and that includes uh, includes Ireland.
0: It's a cracking he's, book, actually. He's an
3: excellent author. I've got a few of his on the shelves.
2: They are very good yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, it, and it's just so much to consider as well. I mean, 1922, it, 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 politically, things spiral in the UK as well. And you have the, the big general election where Lloyd George is turfed out uh, as well. Maybe maybe that's kind of a, a, a lead into what happens. But we're in danger of digressing uh, here. And well, I, I think I, it's
3: important, I mean, now that you mention it, Alex, I mean, obviously you've all this... Uh... Uh, intrigue in, in the UK at the moment. There was, uh, I, there was somebody on Newsnight was making the analogy between Lloyd George and Johnson. I mean, Lloyd George was, as we know, a brilliant man in a lot of ways, self-made, but also... Um, Uh, uh, economical with the actuality, as you say. And he he was brought down by several scandals, wasn't he? And, of course, when we talk about the 1922 committee, what are we referring to? Well, we're referring to the Carlton House, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, mutiny against the the coalition government at the time. So it's really interesting, I think, how history is repeating itself again, you know, 100 years on, not just in Ireland, but in the UK as well. If, what's it,
0: interesting it, is that George V tells Lloyd George, you can have this election right now in the aftermath of the war and you will win, but then you will get turfed out and you will never see power again. He actually predicts it and Lloyd George just laughs at him, like a oh, silly little man with silly little beard, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, he's bang yeah. on.
2: Yeah, I just think if you think things yeah, are unravelling I think it's at the very moment... interesting.
3: That- Yeah, I mean, whether you agree with Boris Johnson or not, he is—he is a historically consequential British prime minister, as was Lloyd George. I mean, but I I see huge analogies between Lloyd George and and Boris Johnson. um, Although I think that, that Lloyd George was much. It was much the more substantial politician. But nevertheless, I mean, what you're seeing in Britain at the moment has its parallels 100 years ago, you know, and the Wilson shooting didn't help the move music either. I mean, it, there was talk at that time that it, was, uh, uh, that it was going to bring down the British government, but it certainly um, concentrated the minds of a lot of diehards in the Conservative Party who didn't really want the settlement with Ireland. And it's one of the reasons why I think that, that the the... the uh, conservatives left government not the only one or the principal reason but it didn't help the made music when the conservatives left the coalition government in October 1922 so uh, yeah very interesting very interesting time and very interesting parallels with the present day I think
2: right well I've loved this I think it's been really really interesting Ronan. it's been excellent having you on um, just to uh, just run us through the, the the name of your book and where people can find out more
3: please Yes, it's my book is called Great Hatred: The Assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson MP. It's published by Faber and Faber, in hardback and paperback, and it should be available in, in all good bookshops and on Amazon and uh, wherever else you can buy your books. It's, it, it should be available.
2: Terrific. Well, thank you very much once again. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you. Thank, Anna, thank you, Andrew,
3: and uh, it's been, it's been fascinating speaking to you guys and i'm really appreciate the time you've taken to, to speak to me when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end we have launched our very own bookshop on
4: bookshop.org where you can find our guests latest and greatest books you can support
3: them and you can support history hack too of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Even on a
4: budget, quality is non-negotiable.